Hello, and thanks for joining us for the Poverty Research and Policy Podcast from the Institute for Research and Poverty at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I'm Dave Chancellor. This is our June 2017 episode, and for this episode, I interviewed Abigail Sewell, who is a sociologist at Emory University. Dr. Sewell visited IRP in December of this past year, and during her visit, we talked about her research on racial disparities in health and how those disparities may be linked to larger political and economic processes. She says that we can think of these kinds of processes as a sort of origin story behind health disparities. So I asked her to explain what she means by this. What I mean by the development of the origin story is that we have been looking at mechanisms or mediators of disparities in health without understanding where those mediators come from. So what I, what I try to do in my research in general is examine the causes of the causes. If you scale back maybe 10, 15 years ago, what that meant was studying things like segregation. So people said, well, it's not health behaviors. It's not resources in the home. It's the fact that these places are segregated. So in fact, segregation has often been considered a root cause. What I say is it is a root cause, but there is also a root cause to segregation. Sewell says that to think about these root causes of segregation, we should look at the underlying processes of how racially unequal or racist structures develop. We come to live in segregated spaces or isolated spaces, places that are isolated from racially privileged people or racially dominant populations through the practices and policies of institutions, uh, the norms, the rituals and the, the rites of passage that are set up by institutional gatekeepers, like underwriters, right? Loan officers. And so by studying what they do and don't do, their actions and inactions, we may be able to think about tractable places of intervention whereby segregation is bad for health or not bad for health. So in some sense, one of my points of departure from the prior literature is that living with people who are racially marginalized is bad for health, not because they're racially marginalized, but because they live in degenerated areas. So if we were able to find the roots of that, we would get a better understanding of how to break apart the systems that recreate both segregation and health risk. It makes sense that living in a degenerated area can have health consequences, but Professor Sewell says housing especially matters because it's so linked to wealth and the resources that a family has the ability to accumulate. We have been trained to think about flows of of cash into a household income. We've been trained to think about the level of statuses that we can attain, education, and we've been trained to think about the prestige of the work that we do, occupation. And while there are disparities there by race, in fact, the largest disparities are by wealth, which is the amount of assets, resources, sometimes capital producing resources that we have to rely on in times of duress. And while there may be 80, 70 cents to the dollar with regards to black, white inequalities in income, it would take 233 years for blacks to catch up in regards to wealth to that of whites. And in many cases, at particular parts of the income distribution, blacks have one cent to the dollar in net assets that whites have. So the theory that comes out of this is, well, there's a driving 
mechanism of socioeconomic status differences, as well as um, a contributor to the sedimentation of inequality across generations. And the primary form or domain by which wealth accumulates is the home, the ability to have a home, as well as the value that's placed on one's home. And that's where the mortgage market, um, as the dispenser of access to housing equity, comes to be seen as very important. Professor Sewell says when we think about mortgages and questions of access as it connects to health, it's important to understand the distinction between public loans and private loans. The extent to which the loans are overseen by the government, as well as the extent to which the government takes on the risk of default. I think that's really the difference between private and, and, and public. But the other question that's embedded in that is why would one be bad and the other would be good? Because in fact, you're more likely to have a private loan if you have a lot of assets in the bank. If you put 20% down, the loan is automatically a private loan. You have no mortgage insurance. Why would that be bad? Well, it's not bad. And that's my research shows that just having access, an influx of private loans in the area isn't bad for health. It's when those loans are more likely to be given to minorities that it's bad for health. So we see this from the perspective of the research on predatory and fringe institutions, that fringe institutions are more likely to broker conventional loans for minorities and for people who are applying for loans in minority areas than for whites who are getting prime loans. To better understand these processes, Sewell began looking at a sample of kids who were in Chicago between 1997 and 2000, and then looked at that group's health as they aged between 1994 and 2003, which is also the period when the subprime mortgage market began to gain steam, especially in minority communities. And then I looked at racial differences in private loans. And the first key finding we find is that children who in 1997 to 2000 lived in neighborhoods where there were large racial disparities in access to private credit or the distribution of private credit, particularly in 1994, had a 33% increase in the likelihood of an asthma diagnosis. The second thing we learn is that while there is a palpable effect, substantive effect of the political economy, as I describe it, these discriminatory political economies on asthma, they don't account for racial disparities in health. What accounts for racial disparities in health are household factors. And these household factors are also linked to or differentiated by the specific type of discriminatory environments that are codified in racial differences in private credit. And specifically, we have household income, family structures, and uh, street block ambient hazards. Professor Sewell says that these things suggest three main types of mechanisms that connect racial disparities in health to the political economy. Number one is a sorting process where different types of households are sorted into degenerative or degenerating neighborhoods. And the second part is a process of unsustainability where once they're in these neighborhoods, they are exposed to unsustainable forms of credit or assets um, that lead to higher levels of foreclosure, debt accumulation in those neighborhoods, which trigger and set off health problems for the adults in the households as well as for the children in the household. And the last part that I examined was showing that among individuals who aged in households that were characterized by 
racial disparities in private credit, they were more likely to receive an asthma diagnosis if those neighborhoods had as little as a 10% increase in the likelihood of minorities receiving private loans. So there's two things here. One, there's a gap of seven years between the likelihood of getting an asthma diagnosis for the child that lives in a neighborhood where there's a 10% increase in the likelihood of getting a private loan for minorities versus a neighborhood where there's a 10% decrease in the likelihood of getting private loans for minorities. And by the age of 18, people, children who lived in the least discriminatory neighborhoods, neighborhoods where whites actually were targeted or preferred for private loans, never faced an increase in the likelihood of being diagnosed with asthma, at least no increase above the average. Whereas somewhat like 25, 27% of 18 year olds who lived in the most discriminatory neighborhoods were likely to be diagnosed with asthma. So we get very different asthma realities for these children who are having higher exposures to discriminatory political economies. I asked Professor Sewell to tell us more about this link between asthma and exposure to neighborhoods where minorities were more likely to get private loans. There's two ways to think about asthma. One, it's one of six indicators that I actually looked at in an original study. We looked at caregiver rating health, obesity, acute physical symptoms, ear infections, asthma and lead poisoning. Asthma and lead poisoning both had some of the most consistent effects with regards to political economic dimensions of the mortgage market. Number two, the theory I walked into the analysis with was that these political economies degenerated environments. They sorted people into areas that where there were more toxins, there were mold spores, there was more old paint chips that were peeling off of the houses. There was more roaches and rat feces in the homes, which to certain extents have been attributed to both lead poisoning rates as well as asthma rates among children. Professor Sewell says that the literature on asthma shows that there's a clear environmental risk associated with asthma, but the question she's trying to answer is how political and economic processes map onto those environmental risks. Now, we don't have the data for it, as specific as the things I just mentioned, but the street black ambient hazards measure that is a mediator between racial differences in asthma and uh, political economy is a measure of the quality of the streets, the house, the playgrounds, the noise levels, air pollution, land pollution on the street block. And so there's some suggestion that, that yes, there is an environmental uh, link between uh, race, the political economy and health. But overall, the main effect of the political economy, at least for asthma, didn't attenuate. I mean, we went from 33% likelihood of uh, increased risk in the in the unadjusted models to once everything was in there, all the potential alternative hypotheses, a 29% increase. That's really no change at all. And so we actually go back to a different argument that we end with a different argument that we start off with. We start off with it is environmental and that's why we want to look at asthma and lead poison and stuff like that. We end with an argument of saying that we may actually be looking at more of a fundamental cause that the real problem is possibly wealth, not necessarily wealth accumulation, but the inability to accumulate wealth as well as unsecured debt accumulation when people have to rely on credit cards in order to make home improvements as well as to 
ward off any other problems and we deal with this issue of foreclosures that may be happening in these communities. Dr. Sewell says that one of her goals with this kind of work is to better understand and convince people to look at upstream factors or root causes that are behind health disparities. There are a lot of different processes that influence segregation or how or where people live. And some of them are choice and agency and other things like that. But I think we don't capture in our measures of the census-based, people-based measures of segregation, the limited agency that people have in where they end up. And we have to get to that in order to really understand why segregation is bad for health, if it's bad for health. And I think that looking at the things using a place-based stratification approach that contribute to why people live certain places is the answer, right? Not coming up with different types of measures of segregation, but literally looking at what are the institutional practices that lead to segregation. Uh, So that's what I want people to take away is what are the upstream causes that have policy implications? Uh, But the second part is what is what is the issue that I want you to know based off of these results? It's actually really simple. Early exposures, even early exposures, you don't have to live in a neighborhood forever, but early exposures to these discriminatory political environments set people on a trajectory of poor health. And that's what you get with findings in regards to the life, the early life course of, of asthma. Sewell says that this research also has worrying implications when we look ahead to some of the health-related outcomes of the Great Recession. For me, when I finished completing the analysis, I actually cried because I realized that if we in 2003 are marking these correlations, these associations between political economies that basically caused the recession and health, and then the recession occurs, we can only expect that this will get worse, that these effects are going to be multiplicative, right? Or additive. And there's nobody that I know of, to my knowledge at least, who has taken a political economic approach to understanding the Great Recession. Most studies that look at Great Recession effects do before and after, and they just look for population changes in the level of illness or utilization behaviors. They don't ask the question of why. Why are certain populations overexposed or more sensitive to the Great Recession than others? And I think a place-based neighborhood effects paradigm can lead us to much more concrete, tractable, and policy-driven or inspiring answers uh, than simply pre-post effects. Thanks to Abigail Sewell for sharing this work with us. This podcast is supported as part of a grant from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Office of the Assistant Secretary for Planning and Evaluation, but its contents don't necessarily represent any positions of ASPE or IRP. Thanks for listening. To catch new episodes of the Poverty Research and Policy Podcast, please subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or your favorite podcast app. You can also find all of our past episodes on the Institute for Research on Poverty website.